Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. You're actually going to have to flip to two places because we're also going to look at Psalm 51, uh, which is really the psalm that David penned in light of the events that happened there in 2 Samuel 11. So let's begin in, in 2 Samuel 11. I've pieced together some verses just for the sake of brevity, but it captures pretty much uh, the story. And then we will read. We will read where David ended up. It really is two scenes, uh, and there's some intervening time between the two, which next week we'll come back and explain how exactly David got from the events of chapter 11 to the prayer of Psalm 51, but that's for, that's for Austin to talk about next week. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman, woman conceived, and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. He concocted a plan, but it didn't really go the way he wanted to. And so, verse 14 in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, sending him back to the battlefield. And in the letter he wrote this, set Uriah... In the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And now we get David's reflections on this from Psalm 51, this very famous psalm. Let's read it together as well. First, uh, first 17 verses, anyway, of that psalm, where David says this to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, Lord, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, 
and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but it's the word of our God that stands forever. Amen. And so we've been doing a series on David. We started in the fall, took a break for Advent, came back here at the beginning of the year. And so in all of the material in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel that really refers to this man, David, last week we looked at 1 Samuel 9 and first, excuse me, 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, David showing mercy to Mephibosheth for the sake of his friend Jonathan. Is David at his absolute best? Chapter 9. Chapter 11, is David at his absolute worst? And that is the way it goes. No matter what successes or strengths you might find yourself possessing, it seems like weakness and failure is right on the heels. It can be going really well and then be going really poorly in an instant. Uh, And I also think it means that no matter who you are this morning... If you are here, and again, I think Christianity makes room for people who are at their very best. It makes that possible, but it also makes room for people to come and be welcome and received even at their very worst. And this is a challenging passage in many ways, and it's a heavy topic, and so uh, forgive me for that, but it's here. We have to deal with it. But I think there's a question that lingers that would be helpful for us just to pose here at the outset and not shy away from, and that is just this, that here's this man, David. This man of such promise, the one called a man after God's own heart, and yet he is capable of these kinds of things. And so I think we need to ask this question. How could a person guilty of murder and adultery be called a man after God's heart? And the answer, of course, is that the dividing line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. Made in the image of God, we are capable of incredible good, incredible beauty and glory Fallen and ruined by sin, we are responsible for indescribable evil. And redeemed, we continue to be both. Samuel Yusuf Peccator was the phrase that the reformers used. Simultaneously, they said, saint and sinner, good and bad, right and wrong, always a mix, always a combination of both those things. No matter how much you progress in the Christian life, no matter how far you go down the road with Jesus, no matter how powerfully he might work in your life, those things remain true. And David is a positive example of piety and godliness when he is at his best. We've seen that. But here's what I want you to also see is that even when he's at his worst, he is also at the same, he still is an example of piety and godliness because he models for us how to respond. And that's what we have to learn, I think. That is the lesson of this particular material. That's what matters most. Not that you get it right every time, because raise your hand if that's true of you. Notice not a hand went up in the room. No one gets it right every time. And that's not what matters most. What matters most is how you respond when you're wrong. How you respond when you find yourself capable of the kinds of things that David, or responsible for the kinds of things that David is responsible for here too. I mean, Christianity is stark realism in the sense that it says we all sin all the time. And we all sin against one another all the time. I mean, John, in that passage that Jonathan read a minute ago, he said, 
I write so that you will not sin, because that is the goal. That, that should be the aim of every life. I write that you will not sin, but then in the very next sentence he said, but if you do sin, there's an advocate, right? There's, there's, there's someone who can deal with that. There's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's reconciliation. And that's why David could be guilty of these horrible things and still be described after a man after God's heart. Not because he never messed up, but because of how profoundly he responded when he did. And that is not to in any way minimize sin. Don't hear that, please. The text actually won't let us do that. In fact, just the opposite, because if you read throughout the text, this is a turning point in the David material. To this point, all throughout 1 Samuel, all the way up to chapter 11 and 2 Samuel, everything has been positive. It's just been everywhere David goes, he meets with success. Everything he touches turns to gold. Everything is just great. And then this happens here in chapter 11. And from this, everything is negative. It is just from now on all the way to the end of his life. It is a series of cascading consequences that all originate right here. When one spring evening, David casually stepped out onto the roof of his palace. And the rest, as they say, it's history. I mean, no one, no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what's at the top of my to-do list today? I'm going to blow my life up today. And yet every day people make careless choices that have the potential to do just that. And David, David never recovered. And David's family never recovered. And Israel never recovered from what happened right here. It was never the same. And I think that packs a powerful lesson for us where the scriptures over and over again say to us, be sober-minded, be watchful, be alert, pay attention. Sin is crouching. The spiritual powers of darkness are prowling like a lion on the savannah of Africa. And so the scripture says that we should match the effort of evil to destroy us with our own effort toward it. Right? Match... You should match the effort of evil to destroy you and the people you love and the things that you've worked for and the things that you're building. You should match the effort of evil to destroy all of that with your own effort toward it. And I think that's a lesson that we should really walk away from this text with. But I think to help us towards that, the text is really, really profoundly insightful about a number of things, but really we want to boil it down to just two things, just by way of just staying on a straight line through all this material that could get us sidetracked. And, and I really think we learn first from mostly chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, the way sin works. We learn a little bit about that in Psalm 51, but mostly the way sin works. And once we know and understand the way sin works, then we can see, particularly in Psalm 51, as David models for us, the way we should respond the way when it gets the best of us, the way when we find ourselves in a ditch like David does here, the way we respond through repentance. And so I want you to see, you'll see that those are just the two, not very original this morning, the two headings of your two points. There's sin and there's repentance. And we want to learn something about each of those as we go through this text together. Okay, first, let's talk about the way sin works because I think there's a lot that we can learn from 2 Samuel 11 in this regard. And the first thing is very practical. If you look first one, there's a timestamp. Where it says that this event, this occurrence happened in the spring, at the time when the kings would go out to battle, when the winter rains would often cause a pause in military operations, and then in the spring, the battles would re resume. And indeed, the battles against the Ammonites, detailed in 2 Samuel 10, 
is being picked back up here right there at the beginning of chapter 11. But curiously, we're told that it's happening without David, that he sent Joab and the army, all Israel, it says there. You see that detail, verse 1? All Israel, but David himself stayed behind. Now, what's the lesson of that? There's something there for sure. And most of the commentators say it must be something like the, the compiler's way of saying David has become careless. He has become too casual. He's become spiritually lazy. I mean, I think that's the point of that detail there. He's staying, he's staying at home, and his staying at home was symptomatic of an anemia of soul. David was pulling back from life. He was starting to take it easy. He had been established as the king. Everything was going great. And so he's pulling back. He's kind of settling in. And in doing so, he's losing what has made him so great, his daring faith in God, his energetic prayer life, his zeal for God and God's kingdom. Something's going wrong in David's soul. Now, I, I really do hate this. Forgive the sports analogy, but um, I... I hate it when teams go into prevent defense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there you go. That got Josh riled up back there. Like if you, this isn't if you don't this isn't in football when a team if a team has been dominating the whole game, sometimes what will happen is they'll be up by a lot at the end of the game and what they do is they start to kind of lay back and and you know play really conservative and not try to give up the big play and just kind of Get, get lazy, and what happens is they've been dominating this team the whole game, and then as soon as they do that, that team that's not been able to move the ball the whole game all of a sudden just goes right down the field and scores. David was taking a break. He was having a self-care day. Oh, see, I shouldn't have said that. That's not, that's not fair. Don't take that too far, because those are important sometimes if you do it right, but still, you know what I mean? He was pulling back, and that's the kiss of death sometimes. There's an old truism, I think it was John Owen that it's attributed to, where he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There are no vacation days in your battle against evil as it seeks to dominate you. Now, the other thing that stands out is uh, the use of a particular word throughout the text. If you, you can even pick it up in the verses that we so it would be a helpful exercise for you to go back and read those verses again at some point and circle every time you see the word send. Send. This word send is repeated 11 times throughout this chapter. So we read that David sent Joab to go to, to, go to war without him. And then he's on the roof of his palace and he sent for Bathsheba to bring her to his bed. And then he sent for Uriah to cover it up. And then he sent... Uriah back to the battlefield to die, and then he's sent for Bathsheba to make her his wife. David is pictured here by the compiler of this material as a puppet master who is pulling all the strings. He was using his kingly power in the way that all the other kings did, to do his own will, to control and to manipulate others, to move the chess pieces around the board according to his own desires, to get what he wanted, no matter what hardship or heartache it might create for others. David was acting as if he was in control of everyone and everything and account, accountable to no one but himself. And that is, I think, the very heart, the very deepest desire of sin in our own hearts and lives, that we would be, we would achieve enough power, enough wealth, enough, you know, 
amass enough resources, whatever it might be, that we could be in control of everyone and everything and accountable to or, you know, needing of no one but ourselves. In Psalm 51, he acknowledged this. He said, verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And so the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry means that we should understand sin as transgression. He says, I know my transgression, he says. He understands. He understands what sin is, that sin is going beyond a limit that God has created. When, when our kids were little, we would travel and stay in houses uh, that um, were not nearly as well adjusted for having children as the home we left. It's one of the challenges of traveling with little kids. And uh, on one trip, I remember that we stayed in a cabin in North Carolina where there were stairs, but there were these stairs that were the kind of stairs where there was a space in between each step. You know what I mean? Like, that's like deadly for an 18-month-old, right? And so, I, uh, Les, Leslie and Maddie, my sister, I think it was Jake who was little, actually, at the time. And so, if one of the little kids tried to crawl up the stairs, you know, whew, they'd fall right through and who knows what happened? So we erected barriers with all of our things to keep them off the stairs, which of course, as soon as you do that, what, what happens? They become obsessed with squeezing through the barriers and climbing the stairs because that, and so we spent the whole vacation just making sure the little kid didn't do what we didn't want him to do because that is the human heart. We spent the whole vacation keeping them off the, off the stairs because the human heart wants what it cannot have. God says, do not commit adultery. Very clear. He says, do not commit murder. And those commands are limits. They're barriers meant to keep us safe and happy. And yet we seem so intent with pushing right beyond those barriers. The catechism says it simply. Sin is doing what God forbids. Going where God says, don't go, because if you go there, you're going to fall through the cracks and bust your head open. There are sins of omission. I'm sorry, there are sins of commission, doing what God forbids. And there are sins of omission, not doing what God requires. And you see both of them in David here, and they actually go together. And so one way to really gauge kind of the impulse, sinful impulses in your own heart are are these two things you see two David doing two things here profoundly you see David making excuses for himself and you see him trying to control everybody else and those really are two impulses that we need to be very aware of in our own hearts and lives as we start to make excuses for ourselves the rules don't apply to me I'm the king and when we start to control and manipulate and move the chess pieces around to suit our own desires What's interesting is there are delusion, delusions, there are delusions here, but there are allusions here to the text in Genesis chapter 3. One commentator even described what happens here to David as a second fall, how the promise of the Davidic dynasty would continue bringing God's kingdom to earth was the charter of all of humanity, placing David at the center of God's work in world history, just like Adam. So in many ways, David was a, a second or, you know, a, a another Adam here. And just like Adam, David sinned. And in David's sin, you see basically the same general pattern that you see back there in Genesis chapter 3. He saw, he saw this beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop across the way, and he wanted her, even though she was forbidden. And so he reached out and he took her into his own bed 
and into his own house, and then immediately realizing the gravity of what he'd done, he began to hide his sin, bringing Uriah home. And so, and then he tries to get Uriah to go into Bathsheba so that they would sleep together, and then it would cover up and hide the affair. But then when that didn't happen, didn't happen sending Uriah to his death so that he could marry Bathsheba and not raise any suspicion about the pregnancy. And that is the pattern, both in Genesis 3 and 2 Samuel 11, and in your story and my story too, seeing and wanting and taking and hiding. And maybe it's worth just a few comments on each. Seeing. It starts with seeing. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. The eyes are the lamp of the body, Jesus said. It matters what you're looking at. It matters what you're thinking about. It matters what has your attention. And so the Bible says, set your mind. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the things that are above, not earthly things. Because whatever's going on in here, whatever you're taking in, is the gateway to behavior that lasts long after the look. But seeing leads to wanting. Sinful actions begin as sinful desires. Before you're actually doing the acts of sin, you've started to desire the wrong things inside, and that the desire blooms, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and as it blooms, it gives birth to behaviors that give birth ultimately to death. There are epithumia, there are over-desires, there's desire at work in all of this, these over-desires for good things, wanting more than you need, or wanting something that God says you're not allowed to have, or wanting a good thing but wanting it too much. And because of these out-of-control desires that are raging in our hearts long before the actual acts of sin, what we do is, because we're driven so profoundly and so powerfully by the things that we think we need and want, then we begin to just go around our life taking, like David here, taking, which is an attitude that looks at everything and everybody in your life and says, that's mine, thank you. That's mine. That's mine. Not content to live a given life, but grasping and holding on and taking whatever you need and then ultimately leads to hiding. But we'll come back to that in just a minute, okay? But I think here's, here's the application as we kind of round to the end of this first point and move on. I think what the Lord would have us wrestle with as we see David failing so spectacularly here, this man who's done everything right basically to this point, I think it's this, don't ever be surprised at what you are capable of. And don't ever be surprised at what someone else is capable of. If you read about David and you think, I would never, then you've already taken the first step towards a similar fate. David didn't wake up on that beautiful spring morning with murder on his mind. It was a thousand miles from his thoughts, and yet murder, not to mention adultery, is where he ended up. And so there's one commentator who said it like this, which is, I thought was very, very uh, powerful. He said, you're always four steps away from murder. That's it. If you neglect your duty, if you gratify your eyes, if you indulge your fantasies, And if you fail to kill sin before it'll kill you, who are you to think that you're not capable of the same thing? Who am I? This is serious stuff, right? Kind of heavy in the room this morning, right? So let's be killing sin before it kills us. But secondly, I think what we learn here is what happens. What happens when you're too late 
and things get the best of you, what do you do then? How should you respond? And I think that's the other part of what we learn, not only here, but also in Psalm 51. Because in Genesis, keep alluding back to that story, the man and the woman there heard the sound of God. Remember, how did they respond to their sin? They hid. And it was what David did too at first. But eventually, what's what's amazing is that he found the grace to come clean and when when I say David came clean he came clean in a spectacular way I mean he penned Psalm 51 which is just this immortalized you know confession of sin that's been around for 4,000 years now now he didn't get there on his own we'll learn more about that next week you got to come back next week okay because that's that's a really important thing but for today it's enough to say this David got there penning this beautiful song of repentance. I mean, David, the adulterer, the murderer, was yet a man after God's own heart, not because he never sinned, but because of how he responded. It was not his moral record. It was his repentance that really made the difference. I mean, what we David sinned against God in the way that Saul sinned against God. They both, again, these two men that have been kind of walking alternate paths here, you've been, they've been in contrast the whole time. I mean, Saul you know, grossly sinned against the Lord. But here, David grossly sinned against God. Saul was rejected, but David was promised a dynasty. How's that match up? Well, it's because Saul refused to repent. David wrote Psalm 51. Now, let's talk about in detail repentance here from this psalm. But first, I want you to see a principle. And I think it's very, very helpful, at least it is to me. And the principle is this. If you, in response to your sin, if your response is to cover sin... Here's what you should just be aware of. If you, if you cover your sin, then God in love will work to expose it. If you cover your sin, then because God loves you, the work he's going to do in your life is to do everything he can to expose it. However, if you expose your sin, then God in love will work to cover it. If you cover, God will expose. If you expose, God will cover. I don't need to tell you which is the better option of those two things, do I? Frederick Buechner said, when you confess your sins, you're just telling God what he already knows. But until you confess them, though, he said, they are a great abyss standing between you and God. But the moment you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. I've always loved that analogy. When we choose honesty instead of hiding, the sins we assume God will reject and condemn us for actually become the means by which we come to know more of his love and more of his grace and more of his compassion and more of his fatherly care and more of his forgiveness. Isn't it amazing the way he works? Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance attributed to David. If you see it in your Bible there, after he had gone into Bathsheba, it says. So it's a direct allusion to the passage in 2 Samuel 11. And in the psalm, David models for us the right response to times like all of this that happened here in chapter 11. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible, but to recognize sin and to repent. And in 2 Samuel 11... That chapter should help you learn how to recognize sin in your own life. Psalm 51 is there to help you learn how to repent, how to respond. And you do it by a number of things, okay? So let's, let's go fast. 
You do it first by seeing your sins. Repentance is seeing your sins. Look at verse 3 of chapter of Psalm 51. David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's what I mean by seeing your sins. David is living with a conscious awareness of his sinfulness. And it can be a torment of soul to live that way, but it is also a sign of great spiritual maturity and health for you to be a person who says, I, I always have a sense of what a big sinner I am. But in seeing your sins, you have to see the aim of your sins. You have to realize that every sin is actually a sin against God. I mean, in the text, David sinned against Bathsheba, yes, and Uriah, of course, and Joab, and all the other people that he manipulated to cover up or coerced to get his own way. And yet, Psalm 51 addressed God. It is a prayer to the Lord, and it says, Have mercy on me, O God, because, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that's a fascinating thing that David singles out. You know, this, this thing that I'm guilty of, it really, is, it really is something that is a sin against the Lord himself. Now, this is, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but hear me out on this because I think this is important. But when David, what he means here is this, that without God, without reference to God, there is no such thing as murder and adultery. Without reference to God, there is no such thing as right and wrong. There is no truth. There's only your truth and there's my truth. And it's just complete subjective morality. And so in the second Samuel text, when David sent Uriah back to Joab to be killed, he said, if you, I, didn't, I don't think this part got printed, but it really is fascinating. In verse 25, as he sends this man, this letter with this man, he says to Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. It's an unfortunate translation, the way it actually says, don't, don't be displeased by this. It means don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And what's fascinating is, it's also mistranslated for us in, where is it, chapter, in um, verse 27. It says, so he says to Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And then in verse 27, we're told, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know what the translation is there? But the thing David done was evil in God's eyes. So here's, here's what's happening there. David's basically saying to Joab, yo, man, just chill. I'm just living my truth, man. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Who are you? Who are, who are you? Don't, don't come down on me. Right? That's what he's saying. But what David has to learn is, yeah, okay, maybe Joab doesn't judge him, but there is one who does judge. There is such a thing as evil. And things that are evil in God's eyes are evil. And there is judgment and condemnation that come with those things. And so the aim of every sin is this. You will be like God knowing good and evil. Isn't that what the serpent whispered in their ear? To decide for yourself between right and wrong, to be accountable to nothing or no one except your own desires. Oh, every human heart longs for that. It is death. And so seeing, seeing the aim of your sin, but also seeing the depth of your sin, David sings, verse five, this is hard. This is hard, guys, okay? This is really hard. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And with those words, he recognizes that sin goes deeper than mere behavior. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, because something is wrong with us at our core. Humanity is not basically good, but uneducated or lacking in opportunities. Parents pass on to their, parents pass their sinfulness onto their children the way they pass their genetic material onto their children. Those sweet little babies, they're sweet, but they're stinkers, aren't they? We are conceived in sin, it says. 
We come into the world drawing our very first breath, dead in sin, alienated from God, hostile in mind and heart to our maker. And that's hard, but it is the clear teaching here. And it's important. And it's important because it's an important part of responding the right way. Because anyone who says they believe that should never be surprised at how easy it is to sin or how persistent sin remains, even for Christians who are born again and who are becoming a new creation and who have the spirit of God living inside of them. That stuff goes deep. But I love what Eugene Peterson says. He writes, he says, I have, I have sinned against the Lord as a sentence full of hope because it is a sentence full of God. And so you got to see the aim and you see the depth, but you have to see your responsibility in your sin too. Verse 4, David says, I have sinned and done what is evil so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I mean, he doesn't make excuses. He's past that. He doesn't blame shift. He's done with that. He's not hiding anymore. He's gotten to this place where he looks God right in the face and says, God, you're right. I'm guilty. I have no defense. There's nothing I can say. Whatever people would accuse me of, it's not even close to how bad I really am on the inside. They know a fraction of how sinful I really am. But you, you know me all the way to the bottom. And whatever consequences coming my way, I deserve them and more. You are just. And that, see, when that starts to happen, then, what, what, then, then when you see the aim, when you see the depth, and when you start to take responsibility for your sins, then the next step in repentance can start to happen. Because repentance is not just seeing your sin, but it's coming to hate your sin. But here's the trick. Coming to hate your sin without at the same time learning to hate yourself. Notice David focused on God's steadfast love and mercy here. He didn't sing about God's wrath. He's singing about God's love and his faithfulness, not his holiness and his justice, because David has come to see rightly his sin as a betrayal of God's love. And there's a difference between hating sin because it breaks God's heart and hating sin because of the consequences it brings. And there's a difference between hating sin and hating yourself because you got caught. Religious folks tend to hate themselves for sinning more than they hate the sin itself. Now, Vicky chuckled. Did the rest of you get that? No, really. Do you get, I mean, that is, no, I stole it. I'm not saying it's for me, but that's profound stuff, okay? I mean, a lot of religious folks tend to hate themselves for sinning more than they hate the sin itself. Because their whole world is built on the idea of what a good and moral person they are. So when they're caught, they experience self-loathing, not grief. And repentance becomes penance, a way of paying back the wrong and getting out of the red and back into the black. And as we've said recently, though, God's steadfast love is love without condition. It's a love that does not fluctuate or change. This is the love that David is singing about, a love that does not falter because it has nothing to do with whether you've been good or bad. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, and so there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's just always there. That's what they, when, when the Bible talks about God's steadfast love, it talks about God's love that's just always there because it's yours because of what Jesus has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Christ. God, we're told over and over again in the Bible, doesn't love you anymore when you're good and he doesn't love you any less when you mess up. That's not how his love works. He loves you on the basis of Christ's merit. This is the gospel in Christianity. If the gospel is true, then in your very worst moments, you can grieve. The right thing to do is grieve because you've betrayed that love. But you can grieve without self-condemnation. 
You can be sad, but to be sad in such a way that you do not become hopeless at the same time. Let me ask you a question. Can you, have you ever, can you sing about your sins? How about that thought? That is what David's doing here, isn't it? He has composed a worship song about his sins. Because by bringing them to God, he has come to know more of his love. That's exactly what he's doing here. And so if you, if you're convinced that God is full of steadfast love and mercy for you, that is, even in your worst moments, he's still inclined towards you in love for Christ's sake, then then there will be a baseline of joy and hope and peace that will outweigh the guilt no matter how big the mistake might have been. And that's how you hate sin without hating yourself. But then, see, repentance is not just knowing your sin and hating your sin, but there's one more step that's probably the most important, and that is that ultimately repentance is forsaking your sin. There's a difference between confession and repentance. And the root of this word repentance is change or to turn. David is not merely acknowledging the truth about himself in Psalm 51. Listen again. He says, down in verses 10 and 11, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants to be different. He wants, to, he wants a repaired heart. He wants a well-ordered heart. He wants a willing spirit. And he knows that the engine for his want to is the gratitude and joy that his life has become void of. Again, the Hebrew poetry there links the willing spirit with joy. The two words are synonymous. So, so that means something significant, I think, that David lost his joy when he sinned, but it also is true to say that he sinned because he lost his joy. Jonathan Edwards, in his magisterial freedom of the will, argued that we always choose according to our greatest desire, our strongest joy. So every sin stems from a lack of joy in God, which means the power to forsake sin is greater joy in God. And you get that greater joy in God by seeing the beauty of his grace to you in the gospel, by knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you're loved, that you're clean, that Jesus' blood has washed you whiter than snow, that God's face is not hidden from you. It is hidden from your sins. It's turned toward you, even in your failure, because your sins have been blotted out. Isn't that what he prays there, verse 9? Blot it out. When my boys play baseball, uh, you couldn't just put the pants in the washing machine. I just always hated it for Ashley uh, uh, or whoever was doing the laundry that night. you got to go to Publix and buy some Fells Naphtha. Anybody know what Fells Naphtha is? That stuff is magic. I don't even know what it is. It's witchcraft. But then you take it home, and you grab it, and you take those pants, and you literally sit in in the sink, and you scrub, and you scrub, and you get out each stain, and you wipe that stuff clean, and then you put it in the washing machine, and it comes out clean. It's amazing. And that's the word. If your faith is in Jesus, then God has taken the blood of Jesus and the grace of his heart, and he's taken and started to scrub the sins out of your life. He scrubbed them away. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you. And just in case you're not catching on, that's a cause for great joy. And it's that joy that's the power for changed life. What's the takeaway? We gotta be done. Well, Barbara DeGuid in her book, Extravagant Grace, she argued from John Newton actually that spiritual maturity and growth are better measured by increasing humility and dependence than they are by what she called the victorious Christian life. Let me say it another way. If that's true, then that means that the entire life of a Christian is repentance. You're never not sinning, so you're never not repenting. If you're not a Christian, 
One of the hang-ups maybe that I've heard people say is, is what you often hear about how Christians are hypocrites because they claim to be good but then act badly. And I don't really know what kind of Christians you've been hanging around, but I think they're the wrong kind of Christians. Because Christians who make mistakes and do horrible things are not hypocrites. Christians who make mistakes and then refuse to respond to the horrible things they've done with repentance, they're hypocrites. See the difference? A hypocrite is somebody who claims to be something they're not. So let's get it straight right now. We're all sinners. We don't ever stop being sinners. We don't ever stop making a mess of things, so we can't ever stop repenting. So if you know Christians that sin, that doesn't make them hypocrites. What makes them hypocrites is whether or not they respond in the right way. You know, I hear people say things like, can't believe the way so-and-so behaves. Makes me wonder if they're even a Christian, because Christians don't act that way. So we got to change our, we got to quarter turn. We got to quarter turn that, okay? Because the lesson we learned from David here is this Christians sometimes do act that way, and worse. So the way we should think about it is this I see so and so, and I just can't believe, I can't believe, uh, you know, the way they behave, and they're not sorry. They don't want to change. There's no repentance. And that makes me wonder if they're even a Christian. You see the difference? I'm laboring to make this point, okay? I'm going longer, I know, I, because I think it's important. Repentance is the standard that we hold one another to. Repentance is the standard that we hold one another to. Right, the way we deal with sin in, in, in one another is through confrontation. If you see somebody sinning, the Bible says you confront them. If they repent, great. There you go, good job, good job, everybody. Yeah, you know, all right, it worked. If not, then you take someone with you and you confront them together, and if they still refuse to acknowledge the truth of what you're saying and to change and to come to God and seek repentance, then you bring it to the church, to the elders, and then it becomes a matter of what we call church discipline, where the pastors and the elders have to get involved and kind of use, use their authority to admonish and to discipline, and if necessary, even remove the person from the church. But here's the point that I want to make. It's very clear. That we gotta, Listen, no one faces church discipline because they sin. Church discipline happens when a person refuses to repent. That's the cause for discipline. Because Christians are sinners who repent, not just once, not just every so often, all the time, all of life. We read Luke 15 on Friday. In Luke 15, Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 like you and me, right? Heaven doesn't rejoice over sinners. Heaven rejoices over sinners who repent. God loves repentance. And David sinned spectacularly, but he repented even more spectacularly. And that's what made him a man after God's heart. I love this line from an old hymn in the Gatsby Hymnal where it says, All born of the Spirit are brought to repent. Free grace can make adamant hearts to relent. Repentance is granted, God's justice to prove. Remission is given and both from his love, both repentance and remission from his love. And so let's pray and ask him to make us great repenters. So, Father, in these last moments we have, as the time ticks away, would you come and in grace, would you overthrow our hearts, the ways that we would seek to just move the chess pieces around and manipulate others and, and act as if we're not accountable to anybody and then hide and run away and refuse to admit the truth about ourselves because we have a reputation to maintain, because we have to keep those places of authority and power and, and the way people think about us. 
But instead, would you give us grace to be able to, in this moment, maybe turn to the person we're sitting next to and to say, yeah, he's talking about me, and to acknowledge the truth about ourselves without fear because we know that if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need not fear to tell the truth about ourselves. But we can willingly turn away from our sin towards you, knowing that even that turning is the byproduct of your grace in our lives. And so come and do that great work in us. Would you make us great repenters that you might be, that you might uh, have the joy of seeing the, the fruit of repentance in our lives. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, listen, I know it might feel like there's a lot unresolved. That's a slower song than we usually sing at the end of the service, but it might be a good place for us to sit. It's okay to leave church feeling like, you know what? There's some stuff that's kind of hanging out there that I got to take care of, right? That's okay. We don't have to wrap it all up in a nice little bow. That's not what we do here. We want to like, we want to be people of reality and that is the reality. But here's the good news that if there's work for you to do, if there's stuff that like this has propelled you toward in your own life, if there, you know, whatever, what, however this might be a cautionary tale for you, whatever the work before you would be this week, this is a promise that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you go, not going to strive and seek uh, that you might gain the Father's smile. You go because of the work of Christ already having his smile. His face turned towards you in all of that beautiful work of figuring out what repentance looks like. And so receive this benediction. Uh, it is good news for every longing soul. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.